Welcome to EJB Talks, Rutgers Blaustein School Experts in Policy, Planning, and Health, where we talk with our faculty and staff experts, as well as students, about how the fields of public policy, urban planning, public health, health administration, and public and urban informatics affect your lives. Welcome to EJB Talks. I'm Stuart Shapiro, the Associate Dean of the Faculty at the Blaustein School, and the purpose of this podcast is to talk with my colleagues and our alumni about policy, planning, and health, the interaction between these issues, and how they affect people in New Jersey, the United States, and the world. In keeping with the theme of the start of our second season, we're talking with our new faculty. Today, I'm speaking with Professor Eric Seymour, who joined us last year and researches housing and teaches in our nationally ranked urban planning program. Professor Seymour, thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure to join you. Let's start by talking a little bit about your research. Explain to our audience what investor landlords, one of the subjects of your research, are and how they've proliferated over the past decade. Certainly, I'd be happy to. Uh, So I should say that um, investor landlords is an encompassing term. Individuals can and do invest in rental housing. Mm -hmm. But often when we use this term investor landlords, particularly since the last financial crisis and last housing crisis, housing activists are often referring to institutional landlords, these larger entities that are often backed by um, private equity. They may be hedge funds, they may be real estate investment trusts, but you have these large financial institutions that are entering into the world of landlording. Mm -hmm. So in 2008, you know, rewind back to the last major crisis in in housing and employment facing the United States, there was a glut of single family homes that had been repossessed by banks, by the federal government, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac. And you had a particular felicitous opportunity for these investors who were looking for new investment vehicles. And so there was growing demand for renting for people who had been foreclosed upon, for people who could no longer get a mortgage because mortgage credit suddenly became extremely tight. And that, on the other hand, you have these, uh, these investors purchasing these, these properties for rental. So it was this supply demand situation creating this um, perfect context for the rise of the institutional landlord. And so these include uh, Blackstone, uh, who's often most discussed in the national media and conversations about institutional landlords, which is this giant global uh, private equity um, entity. Great. Um, let me ask, I have to ask, because it occurred to me as you were talking, do we count Jared Kushner as an, inst- as, uh, an investor landlord? That's a good question. And I also have to, uh, you're, you're revealing my New Jersey ignorance. <laughs> <laughs> he's from New Jersey. <laughs> I, I know he's from the state and he's involved in a lot of um, what I believe to be high-end luxury real estate in some of the these coastal areas and, and up in the city. I don't know. I don't think that he was involved in um, the types of activities I was describing. However, Steve Mnuchin was deeply involved and okay. these um, types of activities of buying single family homes and, and renting them. In fact, there was a, um, 
not to give a nod to a rival podcast, Reveal had a very interesting segment about um, Mnuchin's involvement in becoming a uh, institutional investor in single family homes after the last crisis. Fascinating. I, I know uh, Kushner's involved with stuff in Baltimore, but I have no idea whether it fits mm. in this category or not. Um, so why why is the presence of these investor landlords uh, a problem for lower and middle income renters? Sure. Um, this is one of the comments I most frequently get from reviewers when I'm submitting papers is that um, I do have to add the caveat that right not all investors are predatory actors but there are certain characteristics of their business practices that uh, you know can and do have negative consequences for those who um, are looking for a secure rental housing mm -hmm. and so the contrast that is typically made in conversations about these institutional landlords is is with the the ma and pa or the mom and pop type landlord who maybe owns one maybe their their first home that they're renting out um, if, if it's a couple that's moved out to the suburbs and they have a property in the inner city, or maybe they have a couple of properties and they're going to use that rental revenue to retire. They have probably been renting their property to the same tenant for a long number of years. Maybe went to school together or, you know, their children went to school with the tenant, et cetera. There's some type of a personal relationship. But with this shift to institutional landlords, these are entities that are, you know, out of state, they're beholden to um, investors, shareholders. Some of them are publicly traded. And so they have been um, shown to be more likely to automate their eviction process. So at the first possible day that they can file an eviction, they will do so. They're less likely to work out some sort of arrangement with somebody who's been in that property. Now, these entities are also more likely to find ways to maximize their profits. And so they are more likely to uh, increase the rents year over year. They also have been shown to tack on a large number of, of fees and penalties for a variety of, of things, often erroneously because they have this large portfolio they have to manage. And I don't think that they really have the technology in place to adequately monitor it, or at least from what I've seen in the, the anecdotal uh, reporting about these, um, the situations of tenants reporting this type of activity. And, you know, they're not as, uh, they don't seem to be as, as willing or able to, to maintain those properties. So oh, you also have code enforcement ask. activities as well. So people on the one hand, you're, you're, you're paying, you're paying higher levels, higher levels that go up year after year, you have these penalties and fees, but on the other hand, you know, you may have mold insects and other types of um, issues with the properties. And if the water's not running or the stove doesn't turn on or something like that, you're less likely to get it fixed. Exactly. Gotcha. Um, I was surprised to read in your recent article that this problem extends to motels. What do motels have to do with this? Um, so motels are not directly related to um, what's happening with the, the single family rentals and the institutional investors. This is a different submarket or segment of the rental market. I see. It's one that's expanded as well since the, the last financial crisis. And motels have in many metropolitan areas become the housing of last resort before folks become uh, homeless or double up with friends and family or live in their car. And so I've been working on this project on Las Vegas for the past couple of years, which was um, a departure from me from having studied Detroit and Buffalo for so long. And uh, looking at evictions there over the past decade, I saw that there was this pretty substantial share of the activity concentrated in these 
uh, what they call weeklies. These are these extended stay motel hotel operations. Mm-hmm. And so the, there, there's a trade-off for the tenant that they uh, don't have to have a down payment, like a full month in advance. They're not subject to the same level of screening, but they're actually paying pretty high rent week over week because, mm-hmm. and so they might be able to, to, to manage that rent for a short period of time, but one life difficulty gets in the way and you have to be out within five days. Oh boy. I see. And so there's very few protections for those renters. I see. And, and the same types of actors that have seen the rental market as a possibility of seeing these for, for, for gain have also seen this market. Yeah, absolutely. So there's this one actor that uh, I discuss in this paper that's about to come out in a housing policy debate called King Futz, and they've been in the, the motel operating business for a while. And this is something I've written about uh, in Detroit as well. So understandably, a great deal of attention is paid to these big national behemoths who swoop in and buy thousands of properties for a song and um, are found to be associated with these kind of troubling activities in terms of utter maintenance and accelerated evictions. But there are often these fringe actors who use the crisis as an opportunity to expand the scale of their holdings. And so in Detroit, I saw this in terms of uh, people who had long been in the business of renting properties without maintaining them, who now are just able to build their build out their holdings, expand their portfolio. And so we something similar in Las Vegas with this King Futz, who jumped into a different market because they're able to buy all these properties very cheaply after the last crisis. I see. I, I do have to warn you, I am now going to refer to you as our King Futz expert. <laughs> the Boston School. Um, let, let's bring this up to our current crises. We've tried to weave work into sort of what's going on in the world. We're now in the midst of really what's uh, the, the a recession that I think will be even larger than the 2008 one when all is, is said and done. Um, and of course, we've got the underlying pandemic. Um, is this creating a new housing crisis? It is. I think it will be a very different housing crisis than the mm-hmm. last one. It seems, uh, you know, simply looking at things as they are right now, September 21st, 2020, uh-huh. uh, homeowners seem to have a um, an adequate level of protection from being put out of their homes. Okay. And so many of the mortgages that are originated in the United States, they're ultimately backed by the federal government because they're sold on the secondary market. So Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, which again, as of September 21, 2020, are still under federal conservatorship. So the federal government has a heavy hand in what they can do in the mortgage market in terms of um, authorizing forbearance programs and that type of thing. So homeowners aren't being forgiven for what they're not able to pay right now, but because of the nature of the mortgage market and the structure of home financing through mortgages, they're able to put those payments off into the future, extending the life of the loan. Mm -hmm. Now, I do think that the situation is very different for for renters. And I think that there is a looming eviction crisis unless um, the government steps in to backstop the rent that people aren't able to pay. There is an eviction moratorium in place where tenants don't have to pay rent, but they aren't being forgiven that rent. And so when it comes due, on January 1 or you know, whatever the date ultimately is, 
I just don't see how, without further intervention, you can avoid a, you know, a national eviction crisis, which can then lead to these types of transitions of the mom and pops who are struggling to pay their property taxes right now. They might lose their properties, and then you might see these opportunistic actors come in and pick up all of those those homes. I see. Yeah, we do read a lot about about the eviction crisis. I know Trump tried to use some uh, some CDC powers to uh, to temporarily for, forestall that, but there were questions about the uh, the legality of that. If I read it correctly, I think that's right. I think these landlord associations are questioning the legitimacy of the CDC being involved, but. Right. The eviction crisis is a public health crisis because of the nature of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And so you don't want people to be put out of their homes to potentially communicate COVID-19. So, yeah, that does sort of bring us uh, uh, in a circle up to, up to the, the pandemic, that if we do see an eviction crisis, we're likely to see an, uh, an exacerbating of our, our health crisis. Yes, that's absolutely right. And so if people are being uh, evicted and uh, become mobile and are more likely to be in some type of a congregate housing situation, whether it is a, a homeless encampment or, or doubling up, you're, mm -hmm. you're going to exacerbate the spread of, of the coronavirus. Right. Especially as winter nears. Exactly. Yeah. Um, well, that's cheerful. Um, <laughs> the... Uh, <laughs> um, is there anything else in, in sort of the broad area of housing policy or in your research that you'd like to highlight? Um, so I don't necessarily like to always play this position, but sometimes I like to, um, again, coming to the coast, coming to New Jersey from the Rust Belt, there's a lot of attention justly and justifiably play, paid to questions concerning gentrification. And that's something that I am currently looking at with uh, Professor Kathy Newman and Laura Nolan, our excellent uh, and talented doctoral research assistant, looking at, at those issues in New Jersey. Um, but there are pressing housing quality and affordability issues in places where rents are relatively inexpensive. And so that's something I've been looking at in terms of the intersection of housing and health. I just published a paper at Health in Place looking at um, lead exposure, lead poisoning essentially, in these um, you know, quote unquote, low rent homes in Detroit, um, you have a great deal of exploitation in these low cost rental markets because of the constrained options for folks who maybe have an eviction history, which is going to prevent them from entering the mainstream rental market. They might not have that down payment. And so there are certainly people looking at, at these issues, but uh, that's something that through my work I've been hoping to help contribute to the, the broader conversation of um, housing markets, housing policy, housing issues, and how they relate to health. And I mean, you said the words lead in Michigan in the same sentence. I have to imagine that that, that ties in with, with, with Flint as well. It, it does tie in. I mean, that's a, a, a sort of a different scale of mm -hmm. policy failure there. It's not necessarily something related to the person who's renting the home. Right, that was an austerity-fueled decision related to the state and the local government that uh, has not been adequately addressed. Even though they did just announce a settlement with um, with the city and its residents. 
Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, we always, you know, we think of housing as an issue and we think of health as an issue. And I think one thing your work highlights is that there is a very big uh, overlap between them. Um, a big thank you to you for, uh, for coming on the podcast this week. It's been very, uh, very educational for me, I know, and I'm sure our listeners as well. Uh, thanks, Stuart. It's my pleasure to join you. Also, a big thank you to Amy Cobb and Karen Olson, our production team. We'll be back next week with another conversation with another new faculty member at the Blaustein School. Until then, stay safe.